Paul Auster is a poet, novelist, and director who graduated from Columbia University in 1970. Beginning first as a translator for French poets and authors, Paul would gain notoriety for his detective novels that became known as the New York Trilogy. Other popular novels of his include Moon Palace, Leviathan, Timbuktu, and many more. In addition to his literary works, Paul Auster has also penned several screenplays for films such as Smoke, Lulu on the Bridge, and The Inner Life of Martin Frost. His most recent work is the novel 4321, which was published back in 2017. Starting with um, 4321, it's like the culmination of a, a lifetime of work. Uh, a culmination, I'm not sure if it's a culmination. It's certainly a large book, <laughs> and it's the last thing I've written, but I, I certainly hope it's not the final work oh, yeah. I will be doing. I have uh, other other projects going on, so it's um, uh, it's very large. But at the same time, it didn't take me as long to write it as I thought it would. So essentially, about three and a half years, and um, uh, I spent that much time on other much shorter books. So it turned out to be just one project among many in this long journey that I've been on. But also how it's um, four lives, which I guess I don't want to give away things, be become three, become others. Why this particular structure? I don't know. It, uh, I think it, um, uh, it occurred to me, and it, it seemed fascinating. Um, it seemed to be a way to talk about um, uh, the possibilities of a life uh, in a in a in a new way, uh, as far as I could tell, and so as the book the book is structured in the following way: it's the story of one person's early life from birth to um, early twenties, and there are four parallel versions of that life, and the chapters are set up in 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 a kind of rotation. So we have. Uh, chapter headings such as 1.1 and then the next chapter would be 1.2 and that would be the second version of my character 1.3 and then 1.4 and then it turns over again and then it's 2.1 2.2 etc all the way through seven cycles and that's how the book is structured so in effect you're reading four stories simultaneously or in rotation and um, I, I suppose it can be destabilizing for some readers but I, I feel that once you get the hang of it it's, it's not very difficult at all to, to follow because um, the chapters are fairly long I have roughly 40 or 50 pages of fairly small prints so that uh, you're really uh, inside the narrative and then something happens, that chapter ends, and then, boom, you go back to someone you've already encountered before. It, it's really not very difficult. I would be curious to, to see the notebooks and your, your plots structure. Mm. Well, I know, yes, it was all written out by hand, as I do with all of my books, and I remember that uh, there are eight notebooks, and... 
that they contain the entire text of the book because the pages are big and I write fairly small. So, and just to talk about method a little bit, I I seem to have a, um, a predilection for uh, notebooks with quadrille lines, you know, squares, little graph paper-like pages. And uh, I seem to find the best notebooks uh, come from France. So I tend to buy Clairefontaine, which is a brand I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And every time I'm in France, or uh, not in France, but ask a friend to get more notebooks for me. So I tend to use those. But over the years, I've used notebooks manufactured in the United States and in Germany and in other countries. So in Norway, I remember I had some Norwegian notebooks for a while, but the French are the ones that I, I like the best. And, um, so all of this material, I should say for anyone interested, is in the New York Public Library uh, in the Berg Collection. So nearly all my manuscripts are there. And recently, recently being about six or seven months ago, a new batch went to them, and that included all the material for 4321. That's fascinating. I would love to be able to include images of, uh, of at least one page. That I think that it's helpful for, for writers to see that. I love the, the clarity and the conciseness of your earlier work, but then you have in this uh, these expansive sentences, and how did you find that? Was that freeing or...? Well, I don't know how closely you've been reading my work, but for the last 10 years or so, uh, my sentences have changed. I think the four previous books to this one all are using this um, more expansive kind of sentence structure. Uh, Invisible, the novel, Sunset Park, the novel, and then two autobiographical books, Winter Journal and Yes, report like from the interior. All all use these kinds of sentences. I think it it creates a kind of whirl, a kind mm -hmm. of feeling of dancing, and and there's a certain propulsion that's gained by by doing this. It's not as though every sentence is like that, but the rhythms are different, and they have a more accelerating quality to them than my work in the past. So for a long, long book like this, it seemed particularly helpful to, to be working with this kind of music to push things forward constantly. I'm wondering, yeah, and how does that work with your translators as well? Because, of course, you've done a lot of translation work. And does that present... I don't know. No, yes. no uh, because the sentences are not complex so much mm -hmm. as just long. <laughs> so, I mean, you have to understand the syntax if you're a translator, but it's not terribly difficult. And, uh, and then off you go. You don't translate your own work? No, 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 no. It's, you need that distance and have, somebody, have uh, someone else do it. I mean, with the French translations, French being the only language I, I know, mm. um, uh, foreign language that I know, I, I, I often get involved in reading through it and making comments. But then again, I'm translated into many other languages and I have no uh, participation at all and have no idea what those translations sound like. <laughs> I can only keep my fingers crossed and hope they're okay. You did a lot of translation work 
you're writing poetry. I guess part of your, your identity as a writer was formed in, in France. Um, I, I was, if, if you could imagine your, your body of work, like rooms in a house, if you could walk through some of them, starting with your, your poetry and translations. Well, it starts before that. I, I, I got serious about writing when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And um, so then I was writing short stories and uh, poems. And then uh, by the time I was in college, uh, here in New York at Columbia, um, I continued writing poetry. I wrote an enormous amount of prose fiction all of it in notebooks, probably 800 to 1,000 pages of novels and attempted novels, um, interrupted projects, failed uh, attempts to to write uh, longer form work, um, which led to such frustration on my part <laughs> that I think uh, I, I decided that I couldn't do it. And... Uh, so I abandoned trying to write prose fiction for quite a few years and concentrated on writing poetry and also translating poetry, an activity I liked very much when I was in my early 20s. And then um, also, after a while, I began writing uh, essays and articles about writers, writers that I cared about and uh, publishing in various magazines. And um, and then uh, when I got, I lived in France for a number of years when I was in my early and mid twenties. And then when I came back to the US, um, I tried to make my living as a translator of not poetry books, because of course one doesn't make a living doing that, but just prose books of all kinds. And it was a bit of a slog, but I, I did that for a number of years. But that was to put bread on the table. I don't consider that serious or important work. The turning point, I think, came with a crisis uh, when I was about 30 years old. I seemed to have come to a wall with, with my poetry. I, I couldn't seem to find a way to advance. And um, so for a while, I wrote nothing, and I was uh, pretty much convinced that I was finished as a writer because I just didn't, I was lost, let's put it that way. And then, as I describe in Winter Journal towards the end, I went to a dance rehearsal. I know it sounds like a, a banal thing, but that dance rehearsal um, uh, turned out to be something that opened a door. You're talking about doors. A new door opened for me. And I figured out something about how I had to work in order to proceed. And the new work that emerged from that turned out to be prose. And uh, the first piece I wrote, and this is 19, late 1978, was a short text. It's called White Spaces. It's in my collected poems in English, um, probably in French somewhere, somehow. And um, it's about eight pages. And I remember finishing the text at about two in the morning on a Saturday night in January of 1979. 
So I worked on it over the turn of the year. And it was snowing out. I was in the country. It was very cold. And I went to bed at 2.30. And then the telephone rang at 7 in the morning, which was a Sunday morning. Nobody calls at 7 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, except with bad news. And on the phone was my uncle telling me that my father had died unexpectedly the night before, which is so eerie to me because just as I was coming back to life as a writer, my father was dying. Within about 10 days of his death, I started writing about him, uh, just blindly writing about him. Eventually, that work became a book uh, called The Invention of Solitude, and that's my first prose book. And then, I suppose, having convinced myself that it was possible for me to write prose, I revisited a lot of the old work I had done back in my 20s and discovered that there were, in fact, good things in there. Um, the germs of good things. And out of those notebooks came City of Glass, my first novel, the first book of the New York trilogy, and then In the Country of Last Things and the novel Moon Palace. These were all things that had been, I had been work, working on and thinking about, but unable to do because I was too young and too experienced, inexperienced, and wasn't able to uh do, do it. I mean, it's just not capable. But later I became capable. And um, from then on, I've just been writing novels, essentially, with occasional autobiographical works similar to The Invention of Solitude, but no more poems. I, I, I couldn't do it anymore, and I haven't written any poems, except rather silly poems that I write for family uh, birthdays or weddings or anniversaries. And uh, a few times I've written lyrics for songs. With your daughter? No. Yeah. Hmm? With your daughter, Sophie. Well, not just with her, yeah. but with other people, oh, too. Oh, I don't know, sorry. Yeah, and, um, um, and that's been the story of these last however many years. Um, so I, it seemed to me I had two lives as a writer. The first one as a poet, yeah. essentially, and then that ended, and then... A new writer was born, and he is the writer you're talking to today. And although sometimes you're not writing poetry now, although sometimes you'll you'll continue to translate poetry, and that might appear in a book, you know, like the, the stories within stories. Well, I have translated a few poems uh, uh, that have appeared in the novels I've written, mm -hmm. but they're part of the, the story, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But I, I've enjoyed that. Um, in the new book, 4321, one of the characters actually is translating um, when he's a student, just as I had. And um, so I used a few poems that I translated back when I was 20 years old. Uh, there's a poem by Paul Edouard, uh, another one by Desnos, etc. But also he translates in the, in the story uh, a poem by Apollinaire, Julie Rousse. Uh, wonderful poem, and I did that uh, recently while I was writing the book, uh, a poem that I probably worked for about two years on, off and on. Uh, I kept revising it. I 
be, uh, say, between chapters of 4321, when I was taking ever so slight a pause before going on, I would go back to the poem and fiddle around with it again and make changes. And I kept doing that throughout the writing of the book until I felt more or less satisfied with the results. <laughs> but it was fun. And then in that recent, another recent book, Invisible, yeah. which I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. one of the characters translates a Provençal poet, Bertrand de Bourne. So that translation is in, in that novel, an amazingly crazy poem. And what do you find? Does it sharpen your skills? What, what do you get from that? Or the, what is the pleasure of translation? Uh, it's just pure pleasure. I'm working with poems that are of high, high quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an excellence to them that demands uh, full attention and full effort in order to try to convey something of the greatness of the original. It's a great thing to do, and I, I think it's a particularly a good exercise for young, young writers. Ezra Pound always recommended that young poets should translate because early on, in most cases, unless you're Rambo or somebody like that, uh, a precocious child, um, you don't really have much to say yet, but you have to learn how to be a poet too. You have to learn how to write. And um, translating is a very good way to do it because in a way, the pressure is off. You don't have to invent anything. You have to recreate something else. And in that exercise, not only are you reading at a more intense level than you would in any other circumstance, and that includes being a student and writing yeah. a paper about a poem. Actually, translating it is a far better way to understand how it works. So you're teaching yourself about literature. At the same time, you're flexing your muscles as a writer. If you're lucky and you make a good translation, you've contributed something to the world. Yeah, no, it's really, and they also say that as well, it's the way to really learn something is to teach something, and that's what you're doing, you're teaching yourself. You're Uh, teaching yourself, yes, yes. I remember you're talking about translating the greats, you know, but and then you spoke also about translating in in, in that book, things that were not so good from French into English. Um, yes, yes. A lot thought, of mediocre books. That was, uh, uh, again, it was just a job, and I was doing it for money. Uh, but I wonder also... That, how, however small that the money was, I was doing it for money. I wonder also, can that be not good? It's best to translate the the, the great writers, but also getting used to... Because some you know, young writers treat their work so preciously like they you know I think that you know better than I do that you have to go through just the activity of writing and just just pushing things out to get the good stuff and and I don't know if that's helpful it, uh, there's no rules everybody uh, functions differently I I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, tell anyone anything about how to go about this you have to find your own way of doing it as Goya, the great Goya, yeah. said, there are no rules in art, and he's absolutely right. And you find your own way. So if um, if you treat your work preciously, well, that's fine. Uh, of course, we all treat our work as precious and um, and work very hard at it to, to make it as good as we possibly can. Um, I think translating bad books serves no purpose whatsoever. It's a, it's a, it's a complete waste of time in terms of teaching you anything about how to write. 
Um, but I guess <laughs> when you do have a bad book, you actually have to make it better <laughs> yeah. in the translation than the original. So I guess there's some challenge in that. But that would be more uh, teaching yourself how to become a, a good editor rather yeah. than a good writer. I, I guess they're linked. As you say, there are no rules. That's what I liked uh, about your career path as well, because it's... Uh, you didn't. You you opted. It's very courageous. I feel you opted against. You know, maybe this having the safety net of being a teacher. Although I know you've you've done it for brief periods, but you know, you just you just be a writer. It's original. It's it's courageous. I think, and, and I think that people should should know that that's an option as well. I mean, now it's a lot of the MFA programs and things, but yeah, I I, I have uh, very mixed feelings about these writing programs. I don't know if they're. Uh, useful or not, I tend to think not, mm. um, um, because I don't think, um, how shall I put it, um, the workshop uh, scene, the mm -hmm. setup is such that you write work that then is commented on by your fellow students. But what do they know? Why Why are their opinions more valuable than, than yours? Um, I mean, it seems to me a case of the blind leading the blind. And then uh, the teacher can be a writer whose work you like. It could be a writer whose work doesn't interest you. And, um, and again, everyone has a different approach. So I think maybe it's, it's, it's a kind of money-generating um, uh, planned by universities, but I don't know if it if it ends up doing much. The writers who are going to be good writers and continue are going to do it whether they're in a workshop or not, and the bad ones are never going to become good because mm -hmm. of it. It seems to me. Yeah, no, I, it's very interesting, and I I think about also some of your other um, early. Uh, careers, uh, I think you were on, if you want to speak about those, the jobs you had before you became a writer. Oh, well, I did a lot of <laughs> jobs uh, when I was young. I, I discovered very early that I had no interest in white-collar office jobs. I didn't want to be stuck behind a desk. So I tended to do uh, blue-collar manual jobs, and I I, I, I rather enjoyed them, I have to say. You know, I was young, I was very strong and fit, and uh, so lifting things and hauling things uh, wasn't difficult. And um, I felt that traveling in that world of people who, mostly men, but not always, mostly men, without college educations, people who didn't read books, people who were not at all like me, uh, was very helpful to to help me get a feel for you know the rest of the world. I don't want to be with people just like myself, uh, which is what tends to happen if you're in a university or in an office. But this was a challenge, and uh, the, I suppose the the most interesting job I had was when I worked as a merchant seaman uh, on a what was then Esso, Esso, the oil company, and Esso oil tanker. And I did that for about six months. And uh, there I was with a pretty rough crowd of guys. And uh, I had to figure out a way to hold my own in that, in that world, and I managed to do it. And um, so there's some satisfaction in that. 
And I think back at, uh, about those people often mm-hmm. and people I ran into uh, in, in many different jobs. And uh, I think the only time I've ever written about any of those people is in Handsome Mouth, that mm-hmm. early uh, uh, autobiographical book, which is about uh, not having any money mm-hmm. and how to survive. Because the subtitle of Handsome Mouth is A Chronicle of Early Failure. And... Um, so I go through some of the some of the some of the work I did and some of the people I met along the way who tended to be fascinating. Yeah. The the important thing is this: um, uh, you're writing not for yourself. You're mm-hmm. addressing another person or yeah. many other people. I suppose instinctively, you you know as a writer of prose fiction of narrative that you have to hold the reader's attention because the reader can vote very easily with his or her hands by slamming the book shut and putting it away and never picking it up again. And I suppose your job as a writer is to sustain interest so that people will not shut the book and and stop reading. I'm not talking about tricks and thrills and all kinds of exciting things, but a certain kind of conviction or tone or urgency in the writing that makes it something that uh, you get absorbed in mm. and don't want to leave. And that, that really is what all fiction writers are striving for, whether they're conscious of this or not. I mean, it's not that you're thinking about the audience because you have no idea who's going to be reading it. Uh, but you know there is somebody, if only one person, that you're in communication with and I think this is the great force of reading novels for the reader now, as much as for the writer, is that it is a collaboration between two people, the writer and the reader. And together, they are making the book. Uh, because each reader comes to a book with a different life, a different past, different memories, different experiences, and will interpret that book in his or her particular way. Mm-hmm. And so every book is read by different readers, so it's a different book mm-hmm. in, in, in a sense. And I think why the people who do like this, and I'm, I, I understand that most people do not read novels, or at least what we call now, mm-hmm. such a funny term, literary novels, yeah. <laughs> as opposed to, I suppose, crime novels and mm-hmm. Uh, popular novels of one sort or another. But what happens is a space is created and maybe it's the only space of its kind in the world in which two absolute strangers can meet each other on terms of absolute intimacy. I think this is what is lying at the heart of the experience and why once you become a reader that you want to repeat that experience that uh, very deep internal communication with that invisible stranger who's written the book that you're holding in your hands and that's why I think in spite of everything novels are not going to stop being written no, no matter what the circumstances and we need stories, 
we need we all human beings need the stories from the moment we're able to talk. And um I don't know if you've had if you have children or not, but yes. you certainly no, do know about children and how hungry they are for mm-hmm. stories to be told to them. Um I've never never known a child who didn't want to hear a story starting at about the age of two, two and a half. It reminds me of something interesting that you said about your father that you felt closest to him when he was telling you stories, when he was telling you lies, I guess. Yeah, well, he would make up the yeah. absurd adventure stories for me, but I, I was always delighted with them, I have to say. Like you would become more, more alive, or the, the, he would become who he may have been, his, his deepest, his greatest potential, or that, that's how I read it. Yes, it's quite possible, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, that's a good that's a good uh, thing to point out. So anyway, uh-huh. we we push along, we do the best we can. <laughs> My name is Brett Young, a recent graduate from Fordham University and an associate interviewer and podcast producer here at the Creative Process. I had read Paul Alster's novel Leviathan several years ago and was entirely enamored by his style of writing and unique subject matter. So when given the opportunity to be an associate producer on this interview, I was extremely excited to contribute to this project. As an aspiring screenwriter in my high school and college years, I was always fascinated to learn more about the development and evolution of storytellers like Paul. While I now use screenwriting as more of a distraction or creative hobby, I'm always still interested in the manner in which writers produce such fascinating characters and the provocative situations in which they are placed in. What struck me early on in this interview was how Paul turned away from writing in general for a long period of time and slowly reintroduced himself into long-form literature. In particular, the ways in which he describes the process as almost a traumatic event which he needed to go through in order to fully develop as a writer. Due to my own novice experience in creative writing, I found this to be a fascinating piece of insight. During my freshman year of college, I decided to return to a feature-length comedy I had written in high school. It was an ensemble piece based on an unruly camp I spent most of my summers working at. It's kind of funny to think back on it now, but upon my first reread in over a year of the script, I had immediately lost all confidence in my abilities as a writer. I couldn't find a semblance of anything original I'd written, just twisted recreations of stories and movies I had loved as a child. I ended up muddling my way through that first semester screenwriting course, but I truly thought I had nothing original to offer. I felt I overvalued insignificant life events. It wasn't until late into my junior year, after a series of traumatic personal events in my life, did I think that maybe I could start transposing some of what I was feeling into a story. Listening to the manner in which Paul describes his return to poetry after the death of his father, it strikes me as sort of a therapeutic response for a writer, illustrating your emotions and thoughts on paper, documenting them in places where it might also prove meaningful to others. So far, it seems to me that this is a sort of theme that continued through Paul's life, as he describes his years working in manual labor and blue-collar jobs. While it isn't as emotionally traumatic as losing your father, the time he spent doing this manual labor placed him in an uncomfortable position, one in which he needed to learn to adapt to. And like with his father, he explains this financially and physically difficult period in his life yet again in one of his early novels. On my own journey through college, in between studying, interning, and socializing, I spent my spare time working at an Italian restaurant on Arthur Avenue. 
and like Paul, I found it to be at times liberating to surround myself with real members of the Bronx community, along with working immigrants uh, from Italy, Albania, Mexico, and all throughout South America. And while I never went as far as to become a merchant seaman, my time within the unsheltered environment was a habitat of vast and sometimes uncomfortable experiences that evolved the manner in which I viewed people, mostly for the better. I was surprised to hear Paul talk about appreciating the challenge and the unique nature of blue-collar work. It's a challenge that bonds you with the most unlikely of companions. So while the experience of a true working-class job might not be considered unique in itself, it still does provide a change in perspective, a shift that Paul seems to describe as a benefit to a writer. As inexperienced as I am, in looking back on the aspiring screenwriter I was in high school, I can see the dramatic shift in the stories that I want to tell, ones that aren't based on so much of what I'm going through, but what most of us are going through on any given day. When you come from an isolated background, one like the New York suburbs or a private college, you can find yourself surrounded by the same rinse and repeat stories, ones of similar struggles that end in similar successes. But being thrust into an environment like a busy Italian restaurant or a merchant seamanship forces us to engage with others, no matter their history or background, making one open their horizons to what we might perceive as interesting or creative. Ever since my graduation from Fordham and my departure from the restaurant, I've been trying to rekindle my desire to write, returning to the same janky screenplay from college. And like Paul, I find myself thinking about the uncommon experiences and the people that taught me so much about the real world. I'll think about the confusing interactions with the non-English speaking pizza man, the seductive mannerisms of the bartender that taught me everything, and the jubilant but hectic nature of the kitchen staff during rush hours. All these small facets of the working class lifestyle have become so ingrained in the characters and worlds that I want to write about now. But it's clear in listening to Paul and the way he documents these different chapters of his life in different novels and prose of poetry. It's clear that no matter your level of experience, evolving as a writer is never-ending. Paul mentions how in his most recent novel, 4321, he managed to continue this growth, not only dramatically altering his story structure, but also his choice in sentence structure. I think that if there's anything in particular that I've learned so far is that Paul exemplifies how the creative process is something that can never be rushed. That no matter your aspiration, whether you want to be published or just be creative as a hobby, becoming a talented writer is a development process, one that takes time as well as a broad spectrum of life experiences. I was wondering then what you, you talk about parents and you talk about children, and I wonder what your children have taught you about creativity and, and the imagination. Well, I, I don't know. If, it, if I can, if we can talk about it that way, I think uh, being a parent, especially in those early years of, of, of the child's life, it takes you back to your own childhood. You start to remember things, mm. and uh, that's very interesting. Things that you had forgotten, um, and there, there, they're coming out. Your 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 daughter or your son does something, and, and it can trigger off a little mental journey into into a place where you hadn't visited for years. So that's that's very fascinating. I think too um, 
at least in my case, I, I felt when I became a parent, I was 30, suddenly you find yourself in a different position to your own life than you've been before. And you see yourself not just as your parent's child, but as the parent of another child. And suddenly you're part of a process of the generations rolling along, one succeeding another. And you, you, I think, get a deeper sense of your own lack of permanence, mm. that your life is going to end at some point, and your children will continue. Perhaps they will have children of their own, who in turn will have their children, and on and on it goes. And I think this feeling of the continuity of the generations is, at least in my case, it it made me want to tell stories rather than just write poems, which are songs, so to speak. So from making songs to telling stories and somehow, and I don't understand it fully, uh, becoming a parent seemed to be wrapped up in that as well. It's about seeing yourself Mm -hmm. as part of a continuum of time. And, uh, you know, I think most adolescent and young people, they think they're immortal. They, they, they're not thinking about their death, maybe only in the most abstract ways. But then when you, you have a child of your own, you know without any doubt you yourself are going to die. <laughs> and you, you grow up. I mean, it's, 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 you suddenly become less selfish and less self-centered. And uh, you begin to think of yourself as um, a part of the movement of humanity around you. And, and one thing you spoke about, you mentioned the, the passing of your father, I guess when he was 66, mm-hmm. and, and and how that affected you and made, made you want to tell stories in a, that were more essential or, I don't know, that spoke to everyone, maybe, uh, a wider audience. Could you speak about that a bit? I don't know. I don't know about this audience business. I, I just simply never think about it because um, you know when I first started publishing Mm -hmm. poems I was publishing in little magazines which maybe had I can't even guess 200 readers 400 Mm -hmm. readers Uh, and then my first books were published in editions of anywhere from 500 copies to a thousand and so uh, the numbers were, were very very small and who knows how many people actually read these things. Um, and with fiction, too, you know, starting out, uh, I the first four prose books I published, The Invention of Solitude and the, and the books of the trilogy, were all done by little presses with very small print runs. So I was never, ever thinking about numbers mm-hmm. because, for me, there's only just one reader each time and every time it's one reader reading your book Mm. so whether 10 people read it or or 10,000 it almost doesn't matter Mm. and I guess you've just been doing a lot of book tours and I don't know if you're there with other writers or um, you might be on book tour next to Siri and can you spot the the Paul Auster reader is there others I don't know no they come in all sizes and shapes men and women old people and young people yeah. and people in between. Uh, there's nothing nothing that um, 
uh, I can say about that. The only heartening thing is uh, I've been at this for a long time now, so there are people who come to events I do who weren't even born when I when I started writing, mm-hmm. and and yet here they are reading my book. So that's that's interesting. And and also, I wanted to talk about some of your collaborations. You were talking about writing music, and of course, your writings and you've directed films based on your writing, and your film your writings have been adapted into films. Uh, what do you get from that process? Oh, I like collaborating with people. I find it very enjoyable. At various times, uh, people have taken my work and used it for other works. For example, a theater adaptation of a novel. Or someone has turned one of my books a long time ago into a very little opera. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there have been dance pieces based on uh, my work. There was um, a ballet based on one of my novels. I find that so interesting that one form can inspire someone working on another form to do something. But my actual own collaboration with people, I suppose, um, well, writing the few songs that I've written, I mean, we're talking only about a handful. It's mm-hmm. not something I've uh, made a practice of. But the few times I did do it, I, I enjoyed listening to the results. And the, the heaviest collaboration I've done, of course, is in movies. And that is a it's, a, it's a, it's a very exhausting experience to direct film, I can tell you, but it's also a very satisfying one. And I, I loved the camaraderie of all the people on the crew and the actors, and every stage of making a movie is fascinating. And I'm glad I had the chance to do this a few times. Mm-hmm. I think it taught me a lot about... Um, about myself and about other people. Very important experiences, really. Mm. And then as you came out of that process, I don't know if your voice, your, your, your writing style, I don't know what you brought out of that process into your subsequent novels. No, it had no effect whatsoever. It's mm. two different things. A yeah. movie and a, and a novel, so I, uh, they're both telling stories, but that's about the only thing they have in common. So... Baseball. Why do you write about baseball? Oh, I love baseball, um, but I don't write about it that much. Just a little. But it's it's um, it's something I I came to love when I was very young. I played it. I was an ardent player and took it very seriously, and found uh, I suppose uh, my greatest happiness as a boy was was playing baseball, and I I find it a beautiful game, and um, it's continually interesting. I, I've watched hundreds, if not thousands, of baseball games in my life, and they're always different. There's no, um, no way to predict how things are going to turn out. And I always see something in a game that I never saw in any other game. Some bizarre or strange or unusual event takes place. And, um, and the fact of following baseball as an older person, when you get too old to play it, is that uh, it's one of the few things in American life that is old and continuous and, and really hasn't changed that much since the beginning. And everything that happens in baseball is recorded. Every action has a number attached to it. And so we can look at a box score 
of a game played in 1915 and understand what happened in that game. You can actually see it by reading the, the numbers. And I would bet that uh, among American men anyway, a lot of more of them would know that Babe Ruth, the most famous player of all, Babe Ruth hit 60 home runs in 1927. But I'll bet you only a sliver of those men could tell you who the president was that year. Hmm. So in a way, baseball is a way of hanging on to history as well. So, and it's very interesting that it's one of the few games played without a clock. Hmm. And so that makes it even more interesting to me. So you really, and you find it then structurally sort of linked to novels, then they can, I don't know, go on well, for all, some... All, sport, all sporting events have a certain narrative pattern to them. I think mm -hmm. that's why people are so interested. You go, it's as if you're going to the theater, but you don't know what the play is going to be. You don't know whether the um, good guy is going to win or lose. Or, you know, it's, so there's this, this question of suspense that I think excites people. And it certainly makes participating in sports very enjoyable. You're trying to win. The other team is trying to win. And, um, and it brings out some, um, how shall I put, put it? Uh, uh, you, you, you do things that you didn't expect yourself to, to be able to do in the, in the heat of the moment. And that, that's, that's very interesting. I'm curious about uh, a few of your themes. Why are you fascinated with uh, identity? Uh, you're, you're interested not in the picture on the passport, but what's underneath this? Yeah, I think a lot of my novels, not all of them, but a lot of them uh, take a character in some kind of crisis. There's some situation that the, 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 the character must deal with. Something new, something has happened. Somebody has died, or there's been an accident, or, or there's some um, uh, difficult decision that has to be made, and and so I I think I I I find it compelling to write about people in crisis, which is often a condition of transition as well, and how people cope with difficulty, and how they emerge from it. And often they have to take another road and, 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 and start all over again in some way. So, yeah, in that sense, um, I'm interested in the mutations of character under pressure. Let's put it that way. Right. Have you ever, I don't mean to ask a personal question, but because of um, series writing, have you ever been in psychoanalysis? No, no, I've never been, no. Is there something that you wouldn't want to? You want to save it for your writing, or? I, I just, I, 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 I've always felt that people go uh, to psychotherapy or psychoanalysis uh, because they feel unhappy and there's something mm -hmm. not right about their their life then, and they need to figure out how to how to how to change it. And mm -hmm. I've never felt so. Um, lost or so unhappy with my life that I, I, I felt I needed help from somebody else. I know, I know from long experience that many, many people who are very close to me have profited from this 
immensely. So I'm not denigrating it at all. It just I haven't ever felt the need myself. Me too. I haven't. I think it, maybe it's a bit like the creative writing. Like some some people benefit from it, the creative writing classes, and yes, others yeah. possibly. Listen, one of my very favorite writers of the 20th century, yeah. Samuel Beckett, mm -hmm. his his life was saved by psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. I mean, if he hadn't gone in his early 20s, I don't think he would have been able to do any of the work he, he later did. He was in a terrible personal crisis, and um, uh, his mother actually gave him the money to go to London, and for two years he was in a deep analysis with a very famous uh, psychoanalyst named Bion. Mm. B-I-O-N. Um, so it can help. It can help enormously. So you mentioned Beckett, and I was wondering, could you speak a little bit about some of your friends and also the writers who were influential to you or who were quite important to you? The list is so long, I, I, I don't even know where to begin. Um, I mean, going back, going yes. back. I mean, there are certain things in the Old Testament that I'm very attached to. Um, then there is, you know, Greek literature, particularly Homer, but then, you know, the plays and some of the poets. They're very important to me. Um, and then there are uh, even writers from the Middle Ages that, that have had a big impact on me, uh, Augustine being one of them. Uh, reading this Confessions of Augustine when I was 18 years old was a, a big, big, big experience. You know, then just sort of moving chronologically, I mean, Dante and Petrarch, uh, also uh, hugely important. And then the Elizabethan and pre-Elizabethan era in England, um, uh, it was a time when English was being formed. It was, it's a fascinating thing. English is a new language. It was only until, it wasn't until around 1520 that, that English as we know it, was, was, was formed. And some of the early English poets, like Sir Thomas Wyatt, I don't know if you've ever read Wyatt, yeah, is one of the greatest mm. lyric poets in English history. Mm. Um, you know, here's one. Uh, Whoso list to hunt, I know where it is, and hind, hind was a deer. But as for me, alas, I may no more. The vain travail hath wearied me so sore. I'm of them that farthest cometh behind. Yet may, yet may I by no means my wearied eyes draw from the deer, for, sh for as she fleeth afore, fainting I follow. You see how beautiful it yes. is, right? Oh, that was yes. written in around 1540. And so he's, you know, two generations ahead of Shakespeare. Oh. And then, then we have Shakespeare, who, oh. <laughs> who never stops fascinating me and he's a model for me i know it sounds pretentious but no, i, I take inspiration from shakespeare in that he was one of those protean artists who could work in different modes mm -hmm. you know he could write tragedies and comedies and histories and lyric poems and he was not ever satisfied with sitting still and i i felt that same kind of restless curiosity in myself you know there are different kinds of artists some people do one thing and they do it very well and they keep doing it again and again and again and then others keep evolving um 
say it's the difference between Brock and Picasso, right? Yes. Brock kept doing what he had done in the beginning, and it's good. And Picasso kept changing, and I find Picasso finally much more interesting. And I find your writing interesting, too, in that some people have said that you return to certain themes, but, I mean, I think this is this is normal, but um, I also see that your vo- voice is evolving. Uh, this whole question about, it, it's weird, because for writers and, and painters, painters is the opposite. They seem to want uh, you to uh, repeat yourself, have a bell formula or mm-hmm. something. It's a, it's a quality. And then sometimes when writers are... Uh, identified with one thing that the, the critics sort of keep on seeing in their writing, they they miss all the nuances and the changes. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, you know, there are the painters who, um, you know, for ten years they do blue stripes on mm-hmm. the canvas, and then suddenly the painter wakes up and he has a revelation. He says, "No, blue stripes. No, now I'm going to do orange stripes." <laughs> it's it's yeah. small. They're only allowed to change yeah. colors. <laughs> I mean, this is not too exciting. <laughs> how, how do you feel that technology is changing the way we communicate and interact with um, our imaginations? And um, what are your views on you know creativity and the importance of the humanities? Well, those are big questions. Um, listen, I, for some reason, and I don't know why, uh, the stubborn old goat in me mm. has resisted the digital world. I don't work with a computer. I don't own a computer. I don't have a mobile phone. I just haven't wanted to do email or any of those things. Mm. And, uh, well, as you know, I have a helper, and yeah. that's how you communicate it with me, too, yeah. Jen. Um, but I myself don't want to do this. Um, mm. And I and I don't... Listen, if I had a job I would have to participate in all this, but I don't. So I have the luxury of being able to choose, and I choose not to, really. Um, I, I know, I think, essentially, this digital revolution is, it's a mixed, it's a mixed phenomenon. It has its positive side and also its negative side. And I'm, I'm afraid more and more the negative side seems to be dominating. Mm. Um, I can tell you, I, there's nothing more depressing for me than to say, go out for lunch in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, go into a little diner, you know, a little simple restaurant for a sandwich, and see a family of four people or six people at the next table, grandfather, parents, children, all three generations sitting there looking at their cell phones and not talking to one another. It kills me to look at this. And um, I think the, the, the smartphone <laughs> has made people feel so important. They feel so much the center of the universe by holding that thing in their hand as if they own the universe. Uh, and it theoretically connects you to everybody. But I think in the end, it's it's separating us from one another. And um, so I'm, I'm worried about it. And then there's the whole political side of this and, mm-hmm. you know, the hacking and the, uh, the, the possibility for real serious mischief. And um, I sometimes wonder why governments don't go back to using typewriters and filing cabinets because everything is hackable. And 
he used to be a spy would go in with a camera and steal one document, you know, and then put it back in the in the filing cabinet. But now, if you can push the right button, you can get the entire uh, correspondence by email of, say, the State Department or the Democratic Party or whatever it is you're trying to do. Or you can hack into a, uh, a company the way, apparently, it was the North Koreans hacked into Sony. Remember? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Every, everyone is so vulnerable now. So, and they're giving way, up these freedoms as yes, well. Yes, yes. And so I'm, I'm very, I'm very worried about it. And I, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. It seems as if there's no turning back. But um, we have to figure out how to use this stuff in a better way. Otherwise, we're going to really do harm to ourselves. I think that's what's happening. Yes, and that uh, what I feel is that humanity, the humanities are are a way back or a way to remind us or even to time travel back to periods you've mentioned Shakespeare not of when life was different it'll be a way of reminding us of our common humanity uh, yeah if anyone is interested anymore uh, it's 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 shocking how um, little young people know about the past I, I, I sometimes tremble when I am confronted by this absolute ignorance about even say Americans not knowing anything about the American past, which is a new country with only about you know 300 years to talk about. Um, it's uh, it's surprising. Or meeting young people and they say you know old movies, old movies for a young person is something like Pulp Fiction. <laughs> 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 which came out only 20 years ago and and that for them is old and so they ignore the whole history of movies which again are very it's a very short history and it's very easy to master a great deal of film history in in a short period of time if you make yeah. the effort to, to look at the films um, but uh, people are not looking back they're looking forward and so We'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. It's, it's All right. Good Take good care. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this podcast is Brett Young. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime is composed by Nicholas Anandolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.